My name is Will Pasco, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Pilar Alessandra of OnThePage.tv. Be sure to check out all the resources and classes on her site, and she also offers one-on-one coaching via Zoom. TV Writer Podcast viewers can get 10% off on any of her services. Just reach out to Pilar directly and tell her I sent you. Well, I am so pleased to be here with Will Pasco, showrunner of Absentia. How are you doing, Will? I'm good. How are you? You pronounced both those things correctly, which mm-hmm. is no small feat. Very cool. Well, actually, um, came from Canada, like you, and mm-hmm. uh, studied many languages while I was there. So it helps me a bit with the, the uh, pronunciation. Thank you. Uh, but speaking of that, yeah. I would love to hear about your origins. I think we grew up in some of the same places, though maybe we not did. at the same time. Yes, yes. Um, Born in Calgary, raised uh, first 10 years in uh, Montreal, Quebec, and then moved to Toronto with a lot of other Anglophones um, in the 80s. So Mm -hmm. kind of Toronto became my home. Got into film while living in Toronto, film and television, Mm -hmm. uh, and tried to make my break. I was was working in a different career, uh, like many writers writing scripts at night and on weekends, wondering if anyone would ever read them uh, and I started making short films just because I wanted to wanted to tell stories, and no one was hiring me <laughs> for my for my writing. Uh, so I started directing, and I, I trained as an editor. So I learned how to like kind of put something together in an edit suite, and but all of it was in in service of trying to get a job as a writer eventually. So I started directing documentaries and commercials, and I kept saying, unlike the the classic. Um, cliched line of like no but what I really want to do is direct for me it was like no but what I really want to do is write and then by hook or by crook I was slowly able to get people to look at my stuff and give it feedback and like would you watch my short film sure you know and uh and it was just you know by inches moving forward at times and sometimes one step forward two steps back and then you know my first professional writing credit like dramatic writing credit was on Degrassi Mm. very famous Canadian show and I got to write an episode um, where Drake before he was Drake um, where his character who had been shot the previous season and paralyzed from the waist down gets his first sensation in in his body his first steps to getting his mobility back and um, that beca- that episode kind of became a little bit of a legendary episode because essentially um, the storyline is he's going for physiotherapy and he starts getting feeling in his lower body. And as he's getting physiotherapy from a massage therapist, he gets an erection. And uh, that was in 2007 or whenever it was like to, you know, you have the character on the table with a white sheet over them and all of a sudden up pops uh-huh. a, a teepee, a, 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 the, the sheet kind of thing. And um, uh, that just became kind of this infamous episode of Degrassi. Uh-huh. And uh, that was my first kind of credit, like seeing my name on screen, like, you know, writ- written by. And then by the, after that, it was just, you know, again, one step forward, two steps back. And then my first proper staff job where I'm in the room every day. Everything in Canada, when you're starting out, is a freelance episode. Mm. So you can get one of those every once in a while, but it's not a state, you know, steady paid gig. So that's why I was still doing documentaries at the time. And then my first, you know, staff job was on this international co-production show called Combat Hospital in 2011 for ABC. 
done via Sony. It was a Canada, US, UK co-pro. And that was like my first experience in a room with other writers every day, day after day, something shooting down the hallway, uh, running down to go see it, you know, so that moment of being able to like run down and go, oh, they're filming that scene that we wrote last week mm -hmm. is, was just kind of amazing. And then uh, from that, I was uh, Hart Hansen, who's running a show called Bones, huge show. Yeah. Um, gave me a, br a break on his uh, show, The Finder, and I was a staff writer on that. And that was my first introduction to Hollywood, and driving onto the Fox lot mm. every day. Never got old. Never wow. got old. Like, you know, swiping your fob and the gate goes up and you drive it. Like, I was just like, this is Hollywood, you know. Yeah. And that's the last time I've really had that kind of Hollywood studio experience because now most writers' rooms are somewhere else other mm -hmm. than the studio. Um, but it was just great every day. And I didn't care that my parking spot was far from the writer's room. It was just great to walk onto the Fox lot. And every day I'd walk around at lunch, like peeking into these stages where yeah. legendary movies and TV shows were shot. And um, feeling like I wasn't trespassing for once. I was actually like, I was an insider, so to speak, even though I was just, just a writer, as, as someone pointed out, but I was like, but I'm a writer on a TV show that's filming on this lot, mm -hmm. you know, so I belong. It was kind of cool. Very cool. So, um, so as I know, coming up through um, the Canadian education system, um, there's no television, uh, no television in, at least back then there was no television in the yeah. film schools. Um, so when, when you were writing scripts, were you initially writing TV scripts or were you writing feature films, short films? In, in when did you actually learn to, and how did you learn to, to write TV scripts? When I started, I was writing all of the above. Mm -hmm. Short films, uh, television spec pilots, uh, uh, specs of existing shows, and feature films. So were you self-taught? Mostly, like, thankfully there's great books out there. Um, you know, magazines I would subscribe to to read. I took one screenwriting course uh, at Ryerson, um, which taught me a lot, which is great to go to a class and sit mm -hmm. with other wannabe writers and a teacher who had actually written things that had been produced, um, but mostly self-taught and reading a lot of scripts, like just mm -hmm. would try and get my hands on everything and anything, read it, deconstruct it, mark it up in the margins, this is what happened here, this is what the writer did, oh, this is a great little trick to connect scenes and stuff. So I just tried to like learn from all different kinds of writers and, and, and sort of crafting my own style and my own voice mm. in that process. Um, but you really, you know, there's a, Malcolm Gladwell has that 10,000 hours kind of mm. thing. I, I truly believe it's for writers it's 10,000 hours of pain and suffering where you're <laughs> writing bad scripts yeah. uh, and rewriting and learning and getting better and and even to this day I still find like when I'm doing rewrites it can always get better in the edit suite you're like I can cut some of this dialogue we just don't need it I can do this with a look instead of that line that I thought was so clever six months ago now I'm like we don't need it so you find you, you just pick up new skills and new tricks along the way. But I don't think you're ever, or you should ever be satisfied. You can always get better and you can always try and find a new way to tell a story, mm. new way to be more concise, more subtext, you know, makes things less obvious. 
Um, so that's kind of my lifelong, like, I, I think I'll be writing till I'm a hundred years old. I may, you know, no one will be pr producing my stuff then, uh, but I'll still like, oh, here's a, here's a good idea for a TV show and I'll write that or a hologram show or whatever yeah. it is we have in the future. But I just think writers, and I'm sure you've discovered this, they're just, they just write. And mm. if, if no one's making it, they'll write it anyways, because that's how they express themselves. That's how they connect with the world. That's how they try and understand the world. And that's what I do. I just write to understand things that, uh, are, are, are confusing to me or that I want to know more about. Mm. Do you, how do you find that um, directing documentaries has influenced your writing? You know, I think like most documentary filmmakers would say they're, they're students of human behavior and human interaction and, and trying to understand the world, a, an issue, a problem. Um, and I think drama writers, comedy writers, the same thing, we just do it in different ways. So I, I think just that innate understanding of wanting to look at humanity, look at people, how do they interact, what keeps them awake at night, what makes them laugh, what makes them cry, how does it affect them, how does it change them, that's all kinds of stuff that all of us as storytellers, whether it's documentary, comedy writers, filmmakers, TV writers, whatever it is, we're all trying to do the same thing, we're just doing it and expressing it in different ways. So I think they're, they're translatable skills, they're universal skills, and it doesn't matter even language, country, it's all trying to understand humanity and to tell a story and then to engage someone in that story and make them feel an emotion mm. uh, on some level um, or an intellectual response to something. So I think it's all universal, it's all the same thing, it's just the tools we use are somewhat different in different mediums. Mm. Well, I, I mean, it just on paper, it, it seems like some of your scripts have really gotten noticed. I, I mean, you. One was selected by Entertainment Weekly as one of the best hours of television of the decade. <laughs> um, it, yeah, that was uh, Orphan Black, was yeah. it? Yeah, uh, I, was, I was lucky to write a great Orphan Black episode in season one, uh, the house party episode. And for a lot of people, that's when the show kind of clicked for them or uh, they kind of, they, they bonded with the characters or the world or the dilemmas that these characters were in. So, you know, I'd like to say I was just right place at the right time, with the right episode. Um, but, you know, none of these things, and, and you know, like that, 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 that claim, like one of the best episodes of the decade, I mean, that's a shared thing. Like, that's like every writer on that show shares in that, that credit in that episode because we all contributed to each other's episodes whether it's a line or a joke or a scene so like that i think is not so much a nod to me as it is a nod to the show in that season and stuff so mm -hmm. share that share that credit with with the band with the bandmates so to speak yeah well but but it, i think at the same time it, it speaks to um what you were mentioning about being when you're a student of human behavior and you know that a lot of the nuances i'm sure that does help you write more nuanced scripts? Well, that episode, because it was the suburban house party, I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. So I kind of, when that episode kind of came came down, I was like, oh, I can do this because I grew up in this world of, of neighborhood potluck parties. And I was like, I can, I can, you know, all those times being a kid in the basement as the parents were upstairs having a party or hanging out or talking or whatever, I was like, I know that world, I can skewer that world pretty good. So mm -hmm. that's that was a way that the observant kid in me 
got revenge essentially years <laughs> later on all those people that floated yeah. in and out of one another's houses growing up. I was like, okay, I've, I've seen all those characters, all those archetypes before. I can, I can write that. Hmm, very cool. And, and I, I think, was it around that time that you, you won a Humanitas New Voices Prize? Just before that. And that's part of uh, what got brought me to Los Angeles in the first place, the Humanitas Foundation that does the Humanitas Prize uh, every year, they they started up a new uh, category to get new voices into into the system, and um, I I had pitched Hart Hansen an idea, and I I met Hart through other Canadians through the Canadian Film and TV Mafia as mm. as some they're sometimes called, and he liked me enough, and he read a, a spec script I had for the show House, uh, which was a big hit at the time, and he was like, you can write, you you captured the voice of that show. Um, what do you have? And I said, well, I got this little idea. And he said, I'm going to take this to the Humanitas Foundation. And they said, this is great. And we took it in uh, to Fox and pitched it and they bought it. And uh, I got paid to write a pilot to develop my first U.S. pilot. And I remember I went, flew down to L.A. for the pitch, flew back the next day, like a 24-hour trip. And then I got the news, Fox is buying it. And I remember emailing Hart. I said, so now what? <laughs> He's like, congrats, you just sold your first show at Hollywood. I was like, okay, so what's that mean? Like, <laughs> what do I do with this? And he said, well, and I'll never, I've got this email. I should frame it. He said, well, look, you know, if, if uh, my spinoff show, The Finder, goes, I'm going to put you on that. If not, I'll try and get you a job on Bones. If there's no openings on Bones, I'll try and get you on House, or I'll try and get you on this. Like, he was just going to call all his friends, showrunners, mm. and say, I've got this young writer, he's got some chops, you know, if you got an opening, sit down with him. And um, and true to his word, Finder got picked up, and he emailed me, he said, pack your bags, kid, you're coming to Hollywood. And I was wow. just like, whoa, wow. I, and I, I didn't have a place to live, didn't know anyone, uh, rented an apartment from someone, because it looked like it was close to the Fox lot went through a series of rental cars. I, I would rent a car for two weeks, fly back to Toronto, see my wife and my and my toddler, uh, come back, like fly home Friday night on the red eye, come back Sunday night on the last flight out of out of Pearson, wow. be back in the writer's room the next morning with a different rental car, you know, for the next two weeks. Like, wow. I just, I went through dozens of cars, it seemed like. Wow. And that was, that was my introduction to Hollywood. And, um, had a great experience on the Finder, great writer's room, like just an awesome, fantastic group of writers. Learned, learned a lot, got to, got to write an episode, got to produce it, be on set, mm -hmm. work with the director. Amazing experience. And, and in the middle of it, one of the writers looked at me one day in the writer's room and said, I just realized you're here every weekend. What do you do? And I'm like, kind of watch movies, <laughs> go out to dinner by myself, make dinner by myself. Like on the weekends I was in yeah. uh, LA because I didn't know anyone. Uh, so it's strange that I live here now and I know people because I was a time, a, a person of no fixed address. I kept moving around every two to three months because my lease would run out or the, the person who needed the apartment, the Airbnb would need it back. And I'd mm -hmm. pack up, I'd have two bags and a guitar and and a, and a rental car and I would just move around LA uh, and, and it was an interesting experience because mm. I was living and working in LA but 
I didn't know anyone here. I had no life here. It was just a show. I went into the show every day and that was my life. And then I went back to my empty apartment and ate a frozen pizza and then watched TV and then repeated that, you know, wow. and it was, it was, but it was great because I got to spend a lot of time writing because I had mm. nothing else to do, no one to hang out with. So I just was writing and honing my chops and rewriting and all those things that writers do in our solitary uh, existence. Um, and hopefully I'd like to think that made me somewhere along the way, a better writer. Yeah. Very, very cool. So, um, is there anything, anything of note in terms of immigration? Was it like when you moved your family here, when you fully went through that process, um, how was that for you? It was, um, you know, my wife is like the rock of our family and, um, she put our place up in Toronto for sale. I was down here on my, my second U.S. show, uh, Da Vinci's Demons. <clears throat> I was living at the Oakwood, you know, in, in Toluca Lake. I think it's now called something else. But I was at a bachelor apartment during pilot season with all these little kids that were in for pilot season with their, with their stage parents running them around. And I was just like, I got to be back with my family. Like, this is just not a great existence living in this you know pull, pull down murphy bed apartment and so i said no more back and forth i want i want you guys here my wife said agreed let's do this she put our house up for sale um i had an o1 visa so she could come down and, and my family could come down um and, but we had no place to live and all of our stuff was in toronto our cars were in toronto uh, so we put everything in storage. We rented a furnished place in Studio City, a two-bedroom place, and we were like, we're going to start our lives in in um, America. And our youngest kid was just starting kindergarten, so the whole school thing, like, mm. how do we get them into a school? And we had to show vaccination records. And it was, it, it was very much an interesting, unusual transition to LA because it was. It was like we were coming. We were coming from another country, but we were immigrating to America, and we didn't have much with us. Mm. And we were just starting out and buying pots and pans and all of that stuff. And I remember when we got to LAX, my sister, who lives in America, her family greeted us with a big banner, "Welcome to America." And I was like, "Wow, we are really picking up and starting over somewhere mm. completely new and alien." And my wife didn't know anyone here. My my, my 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 son had left his best friend in Toronto mm -hmm. behind so it was it was it was an emotional experience for us because we were all here because of my career mm -hmm. in a <clears throat> in a selfish way and uh, but we got through it and we've adjusted and stuff but it was it was no one knew what the future was going to hold and if this crazy experiment of living in America was going to last more than a year mm. before we go back. And now we've been here six years, so. Yeah, yeah we've been here seven. Yeah, so we're all transplanted Canadians living yeah. in, in the sunshine now. Very cool, so so your, your family's here, that must have been awesome. You are now at the sort of higher level writing um, on a number of great shows, um, Bitten, Chicago Med, Shut Eye. I mean, talk about this time at sort of building roots here, I guess, and, and that kind of thing. You know, I, I, I admire the writers who came from a more traditional path, like they moved to L.A. or they went to UCLA or USC like, or NYU, like one of those big film schools, Harvard, that have like a feeder system into, into the L.A. film and TV business. 
I didn't come from that route. I came from another country, which to some people, like I was coming from the dark side of the moon, mm. really. It, uh, I wasn't even like a playwright from New York City. I was like from Canada. And my Canadian credits didn't seem to be on anyone's radar down here, um, except for or Orphan Black. Orphan mm. Black people had heard of that and seen that show. So that was helpful. But I didn't come up as an assistant. I didn't work at an agency. So I didn't have this extensive network that a lot of young writers have like mm. it, it, literally I was coming from the dark side of the moon it seemed so and, and still to this day I still feel like I don't know a lot of people in LA like people drop the name of a big agent at a big agency and I'm like I don't know who that is and they're like how do you, how do you not know who so-and-so mm -hmm. is and I'm like because I I didn't come up through the mm -hmm. through the ranks here I just I wasn't in the trenches so to speak um, so I find I'm still to some people an unknown entity because I, I didn't come up with a group of, of assistants and, and young writers starting out and stuff. And so there was no one to like scratch my back and no one, no one whose back that I, I could scratch, so to speak. So again, I, I still feel to this day, I've got to go out and do a whole bunch of generals at places I've mm -hmm. never, ever met at. And, and my reps are like, how come you've never been into, um, into such and such place? I'm like, I just, I don't know. I was on a show working or I was in Canada at the time. They're like, well, we got to get you in. So to some people, I'm, 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 a, I'm this interesting thing that comes through the door because I'm from Canada. And to other people, I'm, I'm this maybe not interesting thing because I didn't come through the traditional system hmm. here. So I'm just this unknown quantity. So some people are intrigued by that and want to sit down and meet. And then other people I think are dismissive because I'm, I'm not, I, I've never been in, in the, in the in crowd, so to speak in, in Hollywood. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break uh, to hear from sponsors. And when we come back, I definitely want to hear more about that, but also the showrunner training program. Um, differences between the Canada and the U.S., and also a lot of what you're developing. Okay. Drivingfootage.com provides 4K nine-angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. AVGearGuy.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the LA area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital so you can easily share with your friends and family. Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit AVGearGuy.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. And we're back. And, and uh, I didn't actually know until we started here that you went to the showrunner training program. Um, talk about that in, in sort of what you had on the table at that time. Uh, the Writers Guild of America showrunner training program is probably one of the best things I've ever done in a professional and even personal sense. Um, caliber caliber of, of people like like my fellow classmates I can call them that were just unbelievable the 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 mentors writers producers studio executives that uh, the guild brought in to talk to us about the industry again fantastic uh, people amazing credits amazing shows um, it was just great it was it was nothing could 
prepare you for the actual job of show running, but if anything could, this probably comes as close to it as possible. Um, and I just, I went through it. It was, an, uh, I think it was eight weekends, uh, January, February, March. Mm. Um, and I had a couple of projects in development set up at studios and networks at the time, um, which helps you get into the program. It's one of the requirements to get in. <clears throat> but what I found the greatest takeaway was that work-life balance, uh, mm. because show running is probably one of the most destructive things a person can do that to themselves. Um, it's just the stress, the amount of money that's involved in, in terms of producing millions of hours worth of, of television programming, all the people that <clears throat> focus on you for an answer, um, you know, it's an unhealthy job, essentially. So I was very curious as, as someone with, with a family, I was like, how do you navigate that? How do you manage that? How do you not go insane? How do you not end up divorced? Mm. Um, and in, to the Writers Guild credit, they brought in people saying, my running my first show ruined my marriage wow. or running my first show estranged me from my kids. I was like, I, I can't, nothing is worth that for yeah. me. No show. Um, so I was just, that was my biggest fear. It was just like finding that balance because I can be type A, I can be obsessive, I can be really dedicated to my work like most writers are. You can get lost sitting in your sitting at your computer in your script and hours go by day turns to night and you're still head down in your script and i was like how do you manage that when you've got nine other scripts or 12 other depending on your show's order to 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 navigate mm. and you have all these emails and text messages and phone calls to return and how do you not neglect your your family um so that was the scary Thing that I was facing running my first show and I just was like it was all about time management and delegation and having good people around you that you can lean on when you need to uh, and you can offload stuff um, and then carving out time for your family and your life mm. and your own mental health and getting enough sleep that was the, that was the hardest thing because mm. at the best of times writers wake up in the middle of the night oh I, ha I figured out that scene now oh I know what that twist should be mm. or I gotta here's a great line I gotta write it down in the darkness because I'll forget it when I wake up in the morning and now it's like you're you're juggling all these other things not just your personal little script that you're writing but everyone else's script and mm. all these other production things so for me it was just like making sure I have enough sleep and not waking up in the middle of the night thinking about like oh we need to cast that character that we haven't casted yet like mm -hmm. I gotta get on that tomorrow because that scene shoots in two weeks and we still don't have an actor for that part so it's just it's time management it's delegation it's it's keeping your sanity keeping grounded and and I found also like just doing human things like mm. away from the show um, taking my kids to a baseball game or something like that or taking my kid to his practice and just being there and being present and not having my laptop out, which I had to do a couple of times, but more often than not, laptop stays at home and you just go do something with your family mm. and you just try and tune out the show for a few hours if you can. But it's hard because, you know, like for me, my, my show, Absentia, we shot in Eastern Europe. Mm. And every morning when I woke up, I had a sense of what my day would be like by the number of emails waiting in my inbox for me to respond to that came in overnight because they are you know, nine hours ahead. And if it was in double digits, I knew I had a busy morning. If it was single digits, I was like, okay, 
-hmm. Nothing blew up overseas last night as they were shooting today. Um, there's no crisis or whatever. But mm -hmm. when there was double digits, I, you know, sigh, get out of bed, traipse down to my computer and start responding to stuff. And it's just, again, it's just trying to keep your sanity in mm -hmm. all that madness. Yeah, well, you know what? Actually, that's one of the reasons I do this podcast is because the, the life stuff can be some of the hardest parts of, about being a TV writer. Um, and it's and this is stuff that they don't necessarily teach you in books. Um, it, how have you found that? You, you ran the room for Absentia um, season three. Did you find the show in our tro training program helped you with that? Absolutely. They, they give us a big binder that you add pages to and your notes to. And I, I had that in my drawer of my office. Uh, and I would refer to it at lunch when the writers were off going for a walk or something like that. I'd pull in and I'd be like, shit, 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 what have I screwed up today? And, and you know, knock on wood, we got through it and it was a great experience. I think the writers had a great experience. I had a great experience with them. And, um, but nothing can prepare you for that. But mm -hmm. fortunately, the showrunner training program, you have notes about what other people went through. And you have a contact list of colleagues you went through the program with who are running shows or mentors who have come in that you connected with that you could call up and say, this is what I'm juggling right now. Like, how do I handle this? Do you have any advice? So it gives you that kind of deep-seated network that you can tap into when you're faced with a question you can't answer or a situation where you're like, I've never been in this before. So like, mm. what do I do? And I did that a couple of times. I call people and I say like, I remember you spoke about something like this. Well, I'm facing it now. Is there anything you do differently? Is there anything I could do differently? Mm. Uh, so it was great. It gives you that kind of backstop of support that being a showrunner, as I'm sure you've heard, is a very mm. solitary, lonely job. Yeah. Um, in many ways. In many ways, it's very social, and there's always someone you can pick up the phone and talk to if, if that's what you want to do. But there's a lot of time where it's just on you, and mm. you feel the weight and the pressure of being the one person who can make that decision. Um, and it's just good to be able to tap into someone who's made those kind of hard decisions before to say, like, am I missing anything? Is there something I'm not thinking about? Here's my scenario. Any advice? I'm open to everything and anything because I've got to make the decision by tomorrow, whatever it is. Um, and that's really helpful to know mm. that there's always someone you can call and, 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 and kind of get some context for what you're going through. Was it tough to come in cold in the season three? Like you hadn't, you weren't on season one and two. No, right? I wasn't a part of the show the first two seasons. So I was the new kid on the block, and I I, I, I likened it to um, a, a child. Mm. Someone's had a child. Uh, they've raised it from a toddler. They've instilled certain values into it, and then they hand it over to you, and you don't want to negate the values that that toddler has been taught but you also want to impart your own values onto mm. that toddler and because now you're responsible for it so that was kind of like the, the analogy was like like taking over someone's kid from them mm -hmm. being handed it to them and like okay now you now you t it can it can walk now you teach it to run um so i it was a it, it was a little bit of a dance of honoring what came before and what was set up in the dna of the show but also trying to make it into its own thing for season three um, and to dig deeper on the on the show's strengths and the and the characters' arcs and try and develop those and, and and fully bring them to the surface. And the show's been out for a week now, and amazingly, shockingly, uh, some of the fans are on their fourth watch 
Whoa. In less than a week. Less wow. than a week, they're, they're watching it for the fourth time. I haven't had a chance to watch the whole thing myself. I wow. mean, I've seen it through rough cuts and all that stuff, but to finally see it on TV, I haven't seen it all. And some fans are on their fourth go. So that's been really heartening, like just the passion and the warmth and the, and the excitement that people have had for this season. And the actors really responded to the stories and the material. Uh, and the crew in Europe really got behind it and brought their A-game to the table. So by and large, uh, I was just really proud and touched and humbled by the work ethic of the cast and the crew and the writers who just poured, really felt like we're, we're making something kind of special here and I'm, I'm gonna really dig deep into my own life, which some of the writers did to put stuff in into the scripts that was deeply personal to them and trying to dramatize that through the characters on our show. Um, so it's, it's gratifying to see people responding to that. But again, I was completely new to it, so I was like, okay, I, I have to honor what comes before, but also make it its own thing in season three. And it's a dance. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a dance with multiple partners, um, but you're the one leading the dance, so you have to decide what the moves are going to be to, to destroy this analogy completely. Mm -hmm. you got to figure out, if, is it a foxtrot or a tango or whatever? Um, and you got to lead, lead your partners in that dance. Um, and I'm not a dancer, so I have really no idea what I'm talking about. But hopefully <laughs> the analogy, the metaphor is yeah. coming across. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of leading that thing, but you got to be respectful to what everyone around you has done before. Mm. How is it shooting out of the continent? Like you literally across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Um, it's not like you can walk across the Fox lot to where it's shooting. Yeah. And you know, I've been lucky on a couple shows, uh, Shut Eye, the writer's room was in the same building that the stages were and the, and the department heads, production departments were. So you could go down and look at a piece of wardrobe and go, yeah, that looks right or whatever. When you're doing something thousands of miles away, uh, it's hard. You, you don't quite get to see that, you know, the actor on a given day decides they want to do a different shirt and you're asleep when that's, that scene's about to shoot. So you have to trust the people there will make sure that the right shirt ends up on the right person in the right scene at the right time. Otherwise, you're looking at dailies and going, where'd that maroon shirt come from? Like, why is that in this scene? Like, <laughs> I never approved that. But, you know, we had a great crew that was, the communication was great. A lot of, and it was very, a very international crew. Like, a lot of our actors were British. Um, a lot of our department heads were Israeli. Just the, the way the show got set up in its first season with the, with the director, Oded Ruskin, who did all 10 episodes. He just brought his team from Israel and set them up in Bulgaria where we shot. Uh, but then our crew on the ground was Bulgarian, so the language was kind of English at times, which which was great. But certain things do get lost in translation. They just, mm -hmm. they just do. Um, and the funniest example of that was I went over for our first produ production meeting for, for our first block of episodes because we blocked throughout the show. So it was like a six-hour meeting where we went through the first six episodes, page turns, essentially, like... And, you were, and you were there in Bulgaria. I was there. Yeah. And we got to this one scene set um, in the FBI where someone's Skyping in from Washington, D.C. So we built a little corner of an office of a Washington, D.C. office with someone who was deputy director of the FBI. And I see in the... For the production meeting, it said photo of general. I was like, 
I wrote this scene. I don't recall a photo of a general in it. Raised my hand. Said, I'm barely. I've barely been here 48 hours. But um, what it, can someone explain to me this photo of general? And someone said, Oh yeah, the boss of the FBI is the attorney general. So we have a photo of a general. I said, Could, And what's who's that general? And they're like, Oh, we don't know. It'll just be one of the crew. It's just a photo on the wall. Well, they had, and again, lost in translation. Someone had done their due diligence and looked up head of the FBI or boss of the FBI. Well, who is who oversees the FBI, you know, in theory is, is the Justice, Department of Justice Attorney General, which is always a civilian. But in a country like Bulgaria that had been in the, the, the Soviet Union sphere of influence for many years, someone sees general, they think military. Mm. So they had gone out and rented an American Army colonel or general's outfit with a beret all these medals and had I not caught that I would have been watching dailies at some point when the scene shot weeks later and I would have seen in the background someone dressed up in a mil like a beret full on medals and I knew enough about the workings of oddly as a Canadian I know enough about the workings of the US government I was like no this is a civilian position it's generally a lawyer it's not a military dictator or anything like that <laughs> so i said you know let's uh let's go down after this let's go down to the wardrobe department they got me a, a blazer a tie a dress shirt we had an american flag they took me outside i looked looked at my dop i said hey can i borrow your glasses he said sure i put on his glasses i, I kind of stood like that and i said okay take a picture and that ended up in the show uh -huh. but had i not been there i would have been watching dailies going Who's that picture on the wall of like some general all decked out? And it would have been a weird thing to, it would have pulled me out of the scene. So certain things like that, when you're shooting thousands of miles away, can mm. fall through the cracks because there's just loss in translation between different cultures, different languages, mm. different government systems, whatever it is that you've grown up in. Certain words take on different meanings. So you have to in addition to all the millions of things as a showrunner you have to look after you have that added layer of complication of just that loss in translation thing mm. and that distance factor language factor that 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 comes into play that you know can throw a wrinkle at the last moment that makes you say okay whoa stop we have to fix this because this is not going to feel right when it's on screen especially if you're back in la yeah yeah well, well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, your developing because you have a number of projects that have been in development over mm -hmm. the last few years for Fox, Playtone, Universal Studios. Uh, can you tell me about your your development process? Like now that you've been busy with these shows, when when do you develop and what does that look like? You know, before the world changed with the pandemic, my development process was me sitting at a coffee shop drinking tea with my headphones on, listening to music, typing. Um, now the development process is, is lost. Well, that wasn't glamorous to start with, but it's even less so <laughs> now. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I, 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 I read a lot of graphic novel. I come from the graphic novel world, like grew up, growing up reading comics. Um, I've got two degrees in history. I'm a sci-fi nerd, so I don't fit comfortably in any box, which is by design. And this is all a business. This industry all, always just wants to put you in a box and label you. You are a, a, a network procedural writer. You can't do a cable show. Or you're a cable show person, you can't do network. And I've tried to fight that for better or worse throughout my career because I just, I, I'm interested in lots of different kinds of stories, different kinds of people. 
and I just never wanted to get pigeonholed as one kind of writer. So with my development, um, it's always, I try and keep it diverse. I try and do a little, not a bit of everything, but I, I, I try and keep my projects different. I love period stuff, so anytime there's a period thing, I gravitate to that, because the, his, the history guy in me, uh, the genre sci-fi nerd does that. So right now I'm developing um, a Brandon Sanderson novella series, um, which is really, really cool. And I'm, I'm developing um, an IDW graphic novel into like a lighthearted spy thriller series. And then I'm working with a couple of recently retired CIA spies. Actually, oh, wow. Spies about doing kind of more of a grounded international spy thriller John le Carre kind of thing. Uh, and again, for me, like meeting someone who's actually lived that life, who uh, has worked in various parts of the world as a, as a, as a CIA operative, that's exciting to me, mm. you know, to hear like, because they can tell you stories that on the best day as a writer, you could never come up with. Mm. Where, where life is stranger than f fiction. And sometimes I have to say, you know, I could put that in a script, but no one would ever believe coming from me that it would happen. They'd say, that's just a little too far out there. Can you ground that more? But having someone who was like, no, that actually happened to me in, in, in Afghanistan or in Russia or in Germany, that is not make-believe. That's real. Mm. It just makes all of us, makes people hearing the pitch kind of sit up and go, wow, this crazy stuff really happened. Mm. This isn't like Hollywood BS. This is real-world spy stuff. So that, for me, is exciting because I'm dealing with people who've actually done the kinds of things that we writers fictionalize, and mm. they're giving me the real version of it and, and what that's like and what it's like to go through that. Like, Homeland did that really well, mm. where you feel the life uh, of an operative in a foreign country and the stress that it takes on you, and we're trying to capture some of that kind of feeling. Mm. So talk about... Um how do you how do you pitch it? When do you pitch it? When do you take it to the the studio or the network? Well, pre-pandemic, it was always an in-person pitch. Um, I've gotten into the habit now. For some of some of my development, I like to pitch with slides. Like the, I like to do like a little show and tell, like a slideshow. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it's it's easier for the person hearing the pitch to like have something to look at from time to time. Otherwise, it's it's a lot of maintaining eye contact. And every place is different, every project is different. But now in, in, the, in the Zoom pandemic world where you're, you're sitting on a chair, someone is somewhere else in LA, you know, looking into their computer screen, it's, and everyone's working from home. So someone's doing, hearing your pitch from their bedroom or from their garage or from their home office or their backyard, it's weird. And there's kids yelling in the background and planes flying overhead <laughs> and someone's car alarm goes off. So it's a completely different environment than being in a boardroom or a little office where everyone's sitting on couches and it's more of a conversation. Mm. So that's been a new kind of challenge to try and make a pitch more dynamic when it's hard to read body language. Um, you know, people want people have a hard time looking at a screen for 20 minutes, so they want to look away. So you as the person pitching has to understand when they're looking away, they're not bored with your pitch. They're just trying to rest their eyes or they're trying to write something down mm. or something. When you're in the room with someone, you can see, oh, they're writing something down. Oh, they, they just heard that point and they want to write it down so they can pitch it back to whoever. Um, in a Zoom meeting, that's a lot harder to get that kind of immediate tactile kind of 
nonverbal feedback. So I've been trying to incorporate slides so everyone, including myself, has something else to look at mm. or doesn't have to feel like they're on in the moment. You're still talking, you're still presenting, but you can, you, you know, you can grab your, your, your coffee or your tea or whatever and take a little sip. Um, so that's been a new kind of thing which every writer is trying to figure out and you know thankfully there's writers groups on Facebook where people are sharing like what do you do for screen sharing and how do you do it and how long and like and it's great because writers um, you know especially in television are collaborative because of a writer's room so like in a virtual sense now they're 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 sharing and collaborating what's worked and what hasn't for them pitching and developing so in, in this world we're in right now, even the, the projects I'm developing, it's all Zooms. And mm -hmm. it's weird, like the telephone call has gone away and I wish it would come back because yeah. it's easier to like be on a call and type, oh, that's a good note, I'm writing that down or I, that just gave me an idea as opposed to like trying to look into a screen, someone gives you something and you're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, you're trying yeah. to write it but still look at them. I just wish everyone would go back to phone calls because mm. it was just a lot more efficient, I felt. Yeah. That you, and you didn't have to like comb your hair and mm. wear a nice shirt or whatever. You could just, you know, yeah. you could be wherever. You could be in your car at a parking lot doing it. But now everyone can tell where you are and you got to make the background look nice. Make sure, you know, your kid hasn't dropped something and made a mess in the back. It's, it's a whole new world of complications. But, you know, I don't know if anyone's figured it out yet. And I think we're going to be living this for... The rest of 2020 so hopefully someone out there will, will figure out the magic solution for this and share it with the rest of us mm. i hope i i was on a call with a big showrunner i'm not going to say who but everybody knows his name and there was a pair of socks behind me that's the weird stuff that happens yeah. right like socks show up in the background like <laughs> like it's a famous people and stuff and you know for me i'm um former musicians so people see guitars in the background and then all of a sudden they're like could you play us a song and I'm like I'm actually here to pitch you a show that I hope you buy but yeah. if you want me to grab the guitar if that's a good icebreaker for us I will grab the guitar and play yeah. it but yeah you know or you know I've had pitches interrupted with the cat outside the door scratching the door and meowing and it gets distracting and weird and I'm like excuse me one second I open up the door everyone can see the door open the cat comes in I shut the door I go back into pitch mode and then all of a sudden the cat jumps up in front of the camera oh and walks I mean it's 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 like a comedy and I wish I'm, I, I'm not pitching comedies but it'd be better if I was because it, the pitch just completely falls apart when the cat gets in the middle of it uh-huh it's embarrassing but you know the, to, to your point Everyone's in the same boat, you know. Um, so even the executives hearing the pitches, no one's like in a great office that's soundproof. Like the real, everyone's living in the real world and existing in the real world from home uh, and trying to make these things work. So I had one person say, um, so I was like, I'm really sorry about the cat. And they said, no, it's actually really endearing and humanized <laughs> you. You weren't just like this guy, like the eighth pitch today of pitching something was like, uh -huh. You're, you're the writer that the cat got into the middle of the pitch and interrupted, you know? Uh -huh. So, like, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But the, the, to the executive's credit, so like, we kind of loved that when that happened. I was yeah. like, too bad it wasn't a comedy I was pitching, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a big, serious moment when the cat's tail kind of walked across <laughs> the screen in the middle of the shot. Wow. Well, what, what do you, I mean, speaking about the virus, what do you think are some of the good things that you see coming out of this? 
I think one of the good things is, I hope, uh, a renewed or heightened commitment to the safety of the cast and the crew because mm. I've always likened it. It's a little bit of a family that gets together for a while and then the family breaks up and everyone goes off into different directions and onto different shows. But for that time you're together, it is a family and often this business doesn't treat that family well. It forces them to work really long hours. And I'm not talking like writers who work long hours, but they're more or less safe hours. We're at a desk, we're in a writer's room, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the crew, the gaffers, the grips, uh, the people that put in like 18 hours and then have to come back six hours later and they've got a long drive because they don't live right by the studio and they're driving tired or whatever. If nothing else, hopefully this renewed sense of, of the safety and security of, of the cast and crew in terms of catching this virus and keeping them in an environment that is virus free as best they can. Hopefully that makes people think of the larger work-life balance and the hours that some of these people put in because those people get forgotten mm. yeah. way too often and they, they shouldn't be. So hopefully if, if we're now trying to find ways to make sets safer, that will rip the ripple effect of that out of the pandemic will be, you know, how do we make our hours safer for the people we have here? who are here before the bell goes off and are here afterwards, you know, because as writer, producers, actors, directors, we kind of walk on right when something's about to happen and we can walk off mm -hmm. right when it's done for the day. But there's a whole group of the in people in this industry that are there before and after that have to put stuff in place, take it away, put it safe, make it safe. And you don't see that a lot unless you're hanging out on sets. And I started off as a PA, so I know. I was the guy watching traffic cones and secu working security overnight and stuff. And I'd see, like, that guy was here five hours ago, and now he's back for the start of another shift. Like, did he just sleep in his car outside? Oh, no, I drove. Where do you live? Oh, an hour from here. I'm like, so okay, so you drove two hours, so you slept for three hours, and here you are back, and you're climbing up that thing. Mm. It's not safe. Like, and we need to do better with with our with our family, so to speak, mm. because people are getting sick, people are getting hurt and dying. And so, if anything, out of this pandemic, hopefully, people take a closer look at how do we make these environments safer for everyone uh, around the clock. Mm. I I remember reading an article that talked about the surprisingly high percentage of industry people in their 20s who were working out of the car. Yeah. I, I can't remember what it was, but it was shockingly high. Really? Yeah. I've heard that, but I didn't. I never heard the number. Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested if you come across that, what the number is. Yeah, it's, it, but, it was... But, uh, but look at high. LA, like, um, or even New York, you know, the two of the big hubs in this country. Like, extremely expensive cities to live in and if you're just starting out in this industry um like luckily i was in toronto when i started out but that's not a cheap city either but it's not new york or toronto um and rents are high and you're not making a lot and you're working crazy hours and you can't afford much so yeah you live out of your car i i'm not surprised by that mm -hmm. because um you know i don't know how you do live in this city unless you have roommates and you live far from the core of the city because you have to get out of the city to get somewhere more affordable. Um, yeah, and a lot of people do those crazy commutes too. Um, 
because LA is a commuting city and that's no different when you're working on a film set mm-hmm. or t- a television set you're coming from somewhere far away uh, every day day after day um, because you you can't afford to live right in the heart of things because it's it's just not affordable for someone on a on a on a on a starting out kind of wage in this industry mm-hmm. um, I did want to mention one thing was um, you you did work a few years in Canada before working in the States. What would you say are just a couple of the key differences that you found? You know, Canadian television shows have less money than their American cousins. Less everything. Less days, less, less time, less money. Um, so our writers' rooms generally tended to be smaller. Uh, and which is actually a good thing when you're a young writer starting out because you get to do more. Um, I remember my first Canadian staff job, Combat Hospital. I actually ended up rewriting other writers' scenes because all the other writers, at some point, the money ran out and they get, they they dropped off. But I was the the the, the, the most junior writer, me and another writer. Um, so we're the cheapest, so they kept us around. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, we're the only bodies standing. So it was like, well, this needs a rewrite. Showrunner's busy. You, you do it. Oh, wow. I'm like, oh, I've never rewritten anyone before. Like, how do I do that? And um, when I came right after that down to L.A. on the Finder, I remember people saying, you're a staff writer. You don't say anything in the room. Your job is to just not get fired. And I was like, whoa. So I'm going to be here for six months and I don't say anything. I'm just, I just show up, sit in the room, have lunch and go home. And I was like, I can't do that. So, but then you have to find your place. You are the most junior person. You don't want to suck up all the oxygen in the room. And I've seen other young writers do that where they feel like I got to, I got to show my stripes. I got to show everyone I deserve to be here. So they just dominate the conversation. And then you can see some of the, some of the more veteran writer-producers rolling their eyes like, oh, here goes so-and-so again. So one of the things I've tried to do with the young starting out staff writers, story editors that I've met is like, no, you, you know, you've been hired to be here for reasons because you have a brain, you have ideas, you have opinions and stuff, you know, so don't be shy about pitching ideas and stuff because I, I know writers have been told just your job, your only job is to not get fired. So mm-hmm. don't say anything that's going to piss someone off, don't say anything at all. And I'm like, like, no, that's not no way to spend your first year in television. Mm. Um, So it's just finding that balance about like, when am I speaking too much? Am I speaking at the right times? Do I know when something has been decided um, and to move on? Am I the person that's helping the conversation? Am I the person that's helping us move towards a solution? Or am I grinding things down to a a screeching halt? Uh, And it's a hard skill. It's a hard, hard skill. I was lucky enough on my first show here, The Finder, that I had um, uh, supervising producers who took me under their wing and said, you're doing great. And I would check in with them every week. I'd do a temperature check. I'm like, how was I last week? Did I say mm. too much, too little? Did I, ha- did I have good arguments or pitch good ideas or were, were they off base? And, you know, they would, they would course correct me uh, if needed. Um, and now I've tried to as I was coming up the ranks from lower level to mid-level to showrunner, try and do the same thing with other writers. It's like, here's something I learned, or, mm. you know, you did a great thing today. And, and I do believe in that 
power of positive reinforcement because this business is so reactionary so often and mm. so negative. Everything is a crisis. Everything is a, is a, is a screw up. Mm. Um, it's nice to be able to say, love that idea today. Like, go home. You, you earned your paycheck today. Maybe you didn't say a lot, but the one thing you did say, like, really helped us solve that problem in that act or in that scene. Great job. And, I, and I've seen the impact it's had on uh, newer writers where mm. they just feel like, oh, I got heard. That meant something to someone. Even if I'm not the showrunner, like, I pull someone aside and say, you did really great today. Like, mm. awesome. You know, Very I'll see cool. you tomorrow. Because people did that for me. Um, and this is... This is a this is an industry that uh, rewards people's worst impulses and worst personal instincts and and character traits. So if I can do anything for other writers, is reinforcing the positive stuff because I was lucky enough to have mentors who did that to me, who hopefully created helped create a, uh, an upper level writer producer that is not a monster, is not a tyrant, because again, this this industry can bring out the worst in people, so anytime you can reinforce positive things in people, mm. I think we're obligated to, especially with newer writers, because you don't want someone quitting because they've just worked for monsters and tyrants. Right. You want someone saying, I, I want to pay it back when I get to that stage, like, so, like Will did for me, or whatever, mm. whoever it is. Um, and there's not enough of that in this industry. And and what, a couple of the projects I'm working on now, I'm I'm kind of godfathering um, some younger writers, diverse writers, uh, underrepresented writers, um, because I'm at a position in my career where I can help someone by being attached in whatever way, mm -hmm. or helping them with the pitch, or giving them notes, or whatever. And I just feel like that's kind of my moral responsibility because. People did that to me when I was starting out, so I just feel like I'm just—it's just the right thing to do, and I should be doing it. And um, you know, and I always joke, I'm like, I'm really only doing this so when I'm like all washed up that you and you're a big showrunner, you'll throw me a script and <laughs> keep keep my health and pension yeah. going. I'm I'm kidding, but it, it's like I do feel that at some point in everyone's career, they should be paying it back if they can. Uh, if, if they had those kind of people when they were coming up championing them and helping them and giving them guidance and support and positive feedback it's just it's more, more of that is needed in this business because again it rewards the worst behavior possible mm. and you have to counteract that yeah. I love the idea of the temperature check that's really cool yeah yeah. Um, well, that's a really good segue to our last section here, with it, which is just tips for greener writers. Um, people coming up the ranks, you already mentioned in the room. Uh, what about in interviews on the page? What are some thing, mistakes that you see people making that they could easily fix? You know, so many young writers or whatever, young is the wrong word, first-time writers, newer writers, getting into the business writers, um, so many of them are, are media savvy, like they've watched videos on the internet, they've listened to podcasts, they've read books, so they're pretty prepared. Like I, I haven't had many interactions where I was like, where did this person get this kind of idea from that they could show up late to a meeting mm -hmm. or uh, say something really offensive. Like, so people are pretty on top of these things. Um, when I'm interviewing writers, I'm just looking for someone that I can first of all connect with because you are in the trenches in these writers rooms for hours and hours and hours a day and you just want someone who's a good human being 
someone that you can be in the trenches with that you can say, okay, I don't want any assholes around. I don't want any backstabbers. I don't want any Machiavellian people. So if I see any of those traits, you know, you're, you're not for my group of writers. Um, I obviously want someone who's good on the page. I want someone who has got ideas about the show. Like, come to, come to the interview prepared. Have a couple of ideas. Loose spitball pitches. Like, have you thought about, you know, do, exploring this character's backstory? Have you thought about doing a storyline where you unpack a bit of this or you, you put them in a situation, whatever, that they've never been in before? Like, just show me that you've paid attention to the show. You've done mm. some homework. You've done some research. Uh, you've got some ideas. So if I hire you and tomorrow's day one, you come into the writer's room and you've already got a couple of ideas cooking. That's great because I will need people like that with ideas mm -hmm. to, to feed into the machine. So first I want someone I can connect with. Two, someone who's got talent like on the page. Can you write a good script? Can you tell a good scene? You know, those kinds of things. And most people, if, if they're coming to you through an agency or manager or whatever, they've been vetted in that way. But also, do you have some ideas for the show? Have you given the show some thought? Uh, have you read the, the, the pilot script or watched the pilot episode or watched the previous season, whatever? Like, do your homework, because mm. that's impressive. Because sometimes people don't, and it shows. Uh, but again, I've been lucky that most of the people, uh, writers I've met, have come prepared and, and really well prepared and have ideas. And y you hear them pitch something, you're like, that's a great idea. That's, that's better than the idea I had. I'm going to do that idea and I probably hire this writer because it's their idea and they should get credit for it. So be prepared. Um, it goes without saying, but uh, there's no excuse nowadays. You can get scripts, you can find episodes online. Um, you know, in the streaming world, almost everything's available. Back when I was starting out, sometimes you'd meet on a show and you couldn't find that show because it wasn't out on DVD mm -hmm. and it wasn't rerunning or something like that. So you'd go on the internet and find some hardcore fan that's r written reviews of the episodes that you could kind of read and, <laughs> and, and, and pull something from and act like you've seen the show, even though. And, you know, sometimes I've had showrunners say, yeah, I haven't watched that season. I, you know, someone's saying I'm taking over the show. Yeah, I haven't watched that season. I'm like, so I know the show better than you do. And that's never a bad position to be in because the show is like, yeah, I'm going to need people who have watched the show because uh -huh. I don't have time to, you know. Wow. And I've actually had someone say that to me. I was like, okay, great. I've seen all the episodes. I, I, I could be your, your go-to person of like, in season two, did they do this? And I can say, yes, they did that. Hmm. Very cool. Well, uh, wrapping things up here, um, what would you say is sort of the most important thing or... or some of the most important things to just having longevity in your career. Having a career. Having just a career. working. Yeah. Um, there's way more writers than there are jobs. So the competition is fierce. I think what helps a lot of people is, again, just having that personality of being someone that others want to be around. When the days get long, the stress creeps up, the deadlines are approaching. You just want someone who's reliable, but also pleasant to be around. Because uh, those people make it easy for me to come in every day and do my job. Uh, to have just good people around who got my back, will pick me up when I need picking up. Um, 
and are just constantly trying to get better, I think. I've, I've met some writers that just feel like, I'm a good writer, I don't need to get any better, I work all the time. And I'm like, you can always get better. Mm. You can always learn something new. You can always push your own boundaries. And I've been lucky on the shows I've been on, like Orphan Black, I got to write an episode that was a very funny episode. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a half-hour sitcom writer by any stretch, but it was a nice challenge for me to write an episode that was more had more levity and less of the conspiracy and darkness and heavy stuff in it. Uh, in a show that had lots of that, but also had lots of levity, I was fortunate I got to write an episode that had levity. Um, on Absentia, I got to write some stuff that was deep-seated sibling and emotional stuff, um, which sometimes you don't get a lot of. In, in any given show, based on the parameters of the show, they don't do those big, heavy, emotional scenes between siblings or between broke, ill-fated lovers, broken, ill-fated lovers. And on Absentia, I got to do a little bit of both. Just, again, the writers that want to continuously challenge and push themselves and, and be pushed into a section um, they haven't done before. I had a writer on Absentia. I said, you're going to write this heavy action episode. And they're like, oh, I've never really written a heavy action episode before. I said, congratulations. Now's your chance. <laughs> I'm here. I'll, I'll help you through it. I've done some action stuff before. And she knocked it out of the park. And now she's got that skill on her skill, on her skill set. Oh, yeah, I can do a heavy action episode. So, again, you want writers that are willing to challenge themselves, willing to go to a place they haven't gone to before. Um, and even for me, like, I, I like having, especially now that I've graduated to showrunner level, like, writing things that I haven't actually done before because they challenge me and they sharpen my skills and they make me a better writer and a more expansive writer. So again, always be looking for writers that want to be challenged and want to get better. Um, in different ways because this is again this is a this is a skill this is a, a career where you can always improve and always get better and always push yourself and you should because that's what storytelling is is digging deeper and learning more about humanity and the world we live in and stuff and I, I talk about that stuff in the writers room and it, sometimes it sounds like BS but especially on our show Absentia we tapped into some real-world things happening in the world today um, that some shows don't go to or mm. are too scared of going and I, I wanted to tackle international refugees I wanted to tackle uh, illegal organ organ harvesting and I wanted to tackle um, nefarious kind of pharmaceutical big pharma companies that 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 profit off of at-risk people uh, in and around that we tell a great character thriller and a great character drama and we have fun scenes and emotional scenes and stuff like that but at the end of the day the show is asking some difficult questions about the world we live in and, and what we're doing about that and that's one of the things I'm most proud of that fans of the show are picking up on I didn't have to go and we the writers didn't have to go into that place we didn't have to we could have just told something more linear something a little more safe, a little bit more straightforward, but we're like, no, let's let's look at what's happening in the world and try and tell a great character story in that world. And maybe, you know, I keep saying this to the writers, like 90% of our job is to entertain, right? That's what we get hired for. That's why we're writing, we're entertaining someone on their couch. 
But in that other 10%, you know, can we engage the audience? Can we empower the audience? Um, can we enlighten the audience? Those are like the three other things in that 10% that for me is the sweet spot. Like if we mm. can get into that stuff and if we can make that audience walk away after the season and go, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about that. I'm going to look this up. I'm going to pay attention to that when it's on the news. Then I've done something as a storyteller that's gone beyond just entertaining them. It's, 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 it's opened their eyes to the larger world they live in, which goes back to my whole being a storyteller and observer of, of humans of, and then just trying to like understand the world and, and express myself in that world while trying to understand it better myself. Well, I can't think of a better place to end up. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Great, because I'm, awesome. I'm so done talking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate talking. Um, so thank you for having me and, uh, and your thoughtful questions and, and reminding me of my roots in Canada and stuff like that. Because cool. it's certainly shaped the writer I am to a certain degree. Great. Thanks, Will. All right. Thank you. And that's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Please watch for new episodes every Tuesday on all of the places you can find the podcast. Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, the tvwriterpodcast.com site, or also at scriptmag.com, and now also on Pandora. And if you're on Instagram, please follow at tvwriterpodcast. Please do subscribe. Please do follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it for as little as 25 cents per episode. You can find out how you can become a patron of the podcast or a sponsor of the podcast at tvwriterpodcast.com slash support. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.